Hello, citizens of the People's Game, lovers of the summer game. Welcome to the People's Game wrap of the first test between Australia and India. No Casey today. Unfortunately, we've had a late withdrawal and illness in the family. But I am joined, as ever, by Australia's second favourite optionally bald off-spinner, Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Gordon, how are you? Uh, very good, mate. Uh, I think I'm probably the first optionally bald off-spinner. I, don't think, I think Gary's uh, on the way out due to genetics, not due to uh, any optional shaving of the top of that chrome dome. But uh, he's, uh, he's growing hair in all the right places, and that's on his chest after a great performance. It was. And so to steal a line from the Australian captain, Tim Payne, it was to Cheswar Pajara who proved the difference between the sides in the summer's opening test at the Adelaide Oval. Nathan Lyon, the aforementioned, was not out twice, the standout in an Australian tale that twice got its wag on. There was just enough wagging to warm the cockles of many a cold heart, but in the end, it wasn't to be. Ravi Ashwin had the last word when he lured Josh Hazelwood into a false stroke three balls shy of the tee break and with the Australians still 31 runs shy of victory. And although the Indians are now one up heading into the first test in Perth, you get the feeling that the fact there was nothing but cricket to talk about out of this match bodes well for the rest of the summer. Gordon, how did you enjoy this one? Well, as I said last week, test cricket is my number one need in life and it fulfilled pretty much everything I wanted. I'm in the middle of drafting a, a piece for Sporting Chance Media. Shout outs to pod hosts because I've realised that we need to be different Australian fans. But there's some limit, limitations amongst um, many of my cricket fans and friends today that are when a head got out to the to the nice, nice and sharp short ball uh, many people were saying, well, if that was Ricky Ponting, he would have just pulled that for six. And I was like, yeah, but Ricky Ponting's arguably the second greatest batsman of all time. We got to watch every single one of his tests. And I know if we had had, you know, uh, a Brett Lee or a Mitch Johnson or any other uh, fast bowlers we've had in our previous times that didn't tire as quickly as the other bowlers or Shane Warne tolling up another end, it's like, yeah, but we, we don't. And that's because what we saw in our halcyon eras in our formative years of getting to love test cricket is that we got to see two of the best test teams of all time and that, that's not Australian Test cricket. Like for the 110 years, that story has not been our story. It's been the story of that period. But really, what we're seeing now is gritty, determined underdog. Kind of is a, a reflection of Justin Langer in his own team as coach. He was a gritty mm. underdog, hard, bit ugly, not in like a confrontational way, but like in like a I don't care how I look, I care how many balls I face, and that's kind of what he instills. Or trying to instill. Or trying to instill. But we're not going to we're not going to see this dominant win, win, win type side for a very, very long time because we just don't have the players. And we probably won't get another period for a very long time where we get 15, 20 players all at once at the peak of their powers who happen to be the best 20 players in the world. It's mm. just unfeasible. So a lot of people are getting used to the fact that we'll get to sit here and enjoy thrilling test matches, which is probably better than sitting and getting pantsed. But uh, we're not going to see us get, yeah, just roll through teams like we used to back in the uh, the good old days. Lovely choice of words there, getting pantsed. So we're going to start off with our review of the test match itself, and we're going to roll into some talk about the expectations that you've already mentioned, and then a bit of a chat about the new commentary. So obviously a big and vastly different era in the broadcasting of cricket in this country. I'm going to lead with my top five things from the Adelaide Test. Uh, the first one I've got on my list here was Virat Kohli's second innings, 104-ball knock of 34. I loved this so much. This was reminiscent of the sort of performance I used to turn out for the Brighton under-15s where I would just block all day and bore my teammates into submission. But I thought it was significant at the time because of the way the Indians batted in the first innings and the need for more restraint in the second. And I think it was very telling... Coley was scoring slower in this dig than Pajara while they were in together. And I thought this was a perfect example of, okay, no, we all fucked up and I'm going to lead the way here in showing how this should be done second time around. I will pause you there because it wasn't essentially his blocking that was most impressive, but he's leaving. Mm. So because he's such a, a precocious scorer and scores at such a hefty rate, it isn't that traditional club cricket, I, I can't hit the ball off the square. It's him saying, I don't want to hit the ball at all. And for a batsman like that who was just so good at hitting the ball, like everyone frothed out at his net session where he's just hitting everything no matter where it is, he has that ability and that's his, that's his default setting. And to flip that and be like, no, I'm captain. We need to bat time. We need to bat the Australian out. We need to make sure we tie these guys out. And really, like almost like Steve Waresk, a bit of mental disintegration. That's really impressive to see from him. Yep. 
And he comes into this knowing that there's there's no need to be fearful. And in fact, we should we should be favourites. We should embrace the favouritism, especially if Australia wants to cede the favouritism, which is what they've already done. So yeah, and there was also in that first dig a desire, almost an over desire, to impose themselves on the game with the Indians, which is probably why they went chasing so much outside their off stump. To see that put aside when you saw the quality of the net, like that net was so remarkable that Mike Atherton wrote an entire column for the Times that was cross-published in The Australian purely about the quality of the contact of bat on ball for Coley. And when you are that good at making contact, it takes some restraint to leave as many balls as he let go. So that was my first big outtake from the week. The second one was that there's just a joy in spending your entire Saturday and Sunday on the couch with the papers and the crossword and all the cricket writing in the world um, and just sitting there and soaking it in. And I pretty much took a leaf out of your book on Saturday and Sunday and didn't move for about six hours other than to, other than to go to the fridge. I don't know how that's a leaf out of my book, man. I spent all my weekends playing cricket. But... I was inspired by your love of yes, the game. Of the I game, yeah. Is more, I got very excited. I almost wanted to dash out into the carport and you know bowl some very dodgy leg breaks. Well, so that's, the, that's more the point because I always get inspired to do cricket whilst listening to it. I'm very much a mm. radio cricket person, I especially think for test match. Radio is the, the peak form of, of cricket mediums and then you can use cricket as a supplementary uh, a feeder. So like you, you're there for the journey, the, the audio oral journey. And then when something happens, you hear it first and you go, I wonder what that looks like from the description. And then you flip that and you can flick across to Fox or 7 or whatever and you see the replay or you go to Twitter or Facebook for the replay, little snippets, and you go, oh, yeah, that, let's check out the DRS and blah, blah, blah. That's my behaviour usually. And so that way you're not stuck on the couch. You're like, you can still go be out and about, but it's one of the very few sports where you can be continuing to exist in the outside world but lost in a, in a world that's oblivious to everyone else. Um, I've already alluded to the, the third one, but the morning paper round. So you had Gideon Haig, Peter Layla in the Australian, Borman Knox in the age. It was juicier than a Mitchell Stark long hop being able to sit in there, get all those columns, consume them every day. You have Crick Info as well, which is a constant refresh. Um, it's just a delight, I think, to read cricket writing and some of the the quality of cricket writing in this country, I think, consistently makes me feel like we are somewhat blessed. What do you think cricket is the strongest of all the writings? Well, we don't write about football like we write about like we don't write about Aussie rules like we do about cricket. We don't write about rugby league really like we do about cricket. Mm. There, are, there are there are some pieces, there are keystone pieces that we we often see, but like we had five days of cricket, we probably had twenty five pieces written, and all of them are of of quite high cachet and quite high importance in where, where they timestamp them. They're like timestamp cultural moments. Whereas footy is like usually just a report. Hmm. X, Y, Z kicked this and they used this tactic and then they won and let's go on to next week. Because there's a very, there's like yeah. a formality about, there's a, almost like a, uh, an automation about writing about football where there's like a beauty and poeticness writing about cricket. Three reasons. Oh, well, not three reasons, but one of the reasons is I'm purely thinking about this from a practice point of view. Much easier to write on deadline with cricket because of the pace of the game. Like most good writers could nearly churn out an entire piece in lunch or tea. So I feel like the speed of the game lends itself to that and being able to write more effectively on deadline. And I, then I also think that I know that Gideon has long said that the plot of a game of cricket is somewhat like a, a Shakespearean tragedy in a lot of ways or an Asher series is like a Shakespearean tragedy because um, I think it does lend itself to more exploration. And you see that with a lot of the pieces this week because you get you get a whole piece written about one Aaron Finch dismissal and how Aaron Finch would be feeling about being dismissed in the manner he was. And that was by Greg Baum. And then you get an entire piece by Gideon Haig about um, Sean Marsh and why we all view Sean Marsh in the way we do. You get an entire piece or an entire, I guess, match report from Gideon on day one that was essentially led, essentially was just a description of the run out and the catch. I don't know why. It seems that in all of those pieces, they highlight individual moments more so than they would in another sport. Which I, I don't know why, because there's moments in football that define games. Maybe I suppose just... the difference is that there's only ever one test on it in Australia at the same time, but there's often you know five games of footy in a day, of which some are unremarkable. Of which, but also like you couldn't. There's a need to tell like you would not have watched every single game, so there's a need to tell just the bare bones facts of a game so that you so that you're informed as a football fan versus. We can presume you've watched the test or seen the test or heard the test or watched the news capture or the replay or whatever, so we can have the liberty to write about the important moment as opposed to be pressed to write the report. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's a reflection on the quality of the riders because a lot of these riders also ride other sports. Mm. So it is something inherent in cricket that lends itself to deeper exploration, a tie-in with exceeding literary culture. I don't know what it is. I think it goes back to you talking earlier and – I know we spoke about this when we talked about crossing the line. Cricket and test cricket in particular being a little bit more high society perhaps than other forms of the game and other sports. Seguing into a little wicketkeeper by the name of R.R. Pant, who has already been slightly mentioned in one way or another, who equaled the test dismissals record held uh, coherently by A.B. de Villiers and Jack Russell with 11 dismissals, but also some wonderfully amusing chat and enthusiastic chat from behind the stumps, which I think somewhat befitted his age. The um, best part is that he's not even that good of a keeper. No, I mean, the drop catch was, I thought, was poor today. It was more, to me, that's more a reflection on the quality of the bowling, to have 11 caught behinds or 11 dismissals by or, the keeper. Or sort of shots you were playing. Like, they were very mm. thin, wispy, wafty nicks outside off, or playing a high ball coming through where you're having an uncontrolled swipe slash hook. Like, those things are pretty easy to catch. There was, there was no real thick... Like classic Australian hard pitch wickets, where you grab the thick edge and you go sprawling to the right and take a good one, or you use your feet nicely, like you know the old days of Ian Healy and somewhat Adam Gilchrist. I mean, I, do, I thought his general demeanour behind the stumps was entertaining. If nothing else, his batting was entertaining for the sixteen balls or whatever it was that it lasted. But yeah, I think that record in itself is a is a reflection on some other factors in the game. Absolutely, it'd be interesting to see how he develops as a, as a cricketer in mm. the long form as well, because he obviously has. He has supreme talent, but he's in that, I suppose, that Glenn Maxwell phase of his uh, of his development as a long-form cricketer and whether or not he wants to rein that in. Obviously, well, the best case scenario is that he keeps what he who he is. Uh, he's that effervescent. He is that flashy T20 Indian Bollywood poster boy. But can he pick his times to do that and then pick his times to leave the ball alone? And I think showing his batting so far this test is uh, definitely not like that skill yet. And I don't think that's how they're trying to use him. Is probably the defense. And he was told yeah, in his yeah. defense in the second innings, he was definitely told to go out there. Let's take the game away from them. If it pays off, awesome. And if it doesn't, then nothing's lost. Well, if he goes for another ten minutes, but but also in the first over. innings was a very different situation where he batted exactly the same. So to be seen how that all unfolds. The final one was just everything that Nathan Lyon did. Two not outs in a Test match. Looks every part the mature lower order batsman. Um, we've never had a problem with lower order runs. Our lower order is, or our tail specifically, is the most successful in world cricket in the last 12 months in terms of average. Um, but I just thought that the way that he batted was incredibly mature. Uh, the work, or sorry, the bat, on the back of work he did during the week with his brother in the nets. And I thought his test match all round was pretty exceptional for, for the Australians. And the fact that they got so close was purely a testament to how he played on the final day. He gets undersold, Nathan Lyon. Mm. Like, the joke was that he's the GOAT, but, like, he actually is. The GOAT in terms of off-spinning. Well, he's the fourth leading wicket-taker for Australia of all time. That's, that's and so no one, would, no one would realise that. Like, no one just – he's a very unassuming person. But then again, so two seasons ago, he was on the brink of being dropped because apparently he wasn't good enough in the clutch moments. Mm. Now he's just taken a six-foot in Adelaide where the opposition's leading off-spinner and the so-called leading off-spinner in the world – only takes one in the last innings after bowling 50-odd overs. Mm. So he has this ability to go overseas now and take wickets to do it at home. He did that in Pune, didn't he? Was it Pune? Yeah. 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 And, he has, and, he's, and he's not an off-spinner that doesn't back himself in. So he has he has flooded livers, he has Olympia ones, but he's always got fizz on the ball. He's always trying to spin. If, even if it's overall side, he can vary that. And he's and he just backs in his skill set. So he backs in his skill sets when he's bowling. He doesn't he doesn't have a doujere. He doesn't really, has a, an arm-ish ball. But he just knows that I can I can make it bounce, I can make it pop, I can make it turn. And the way I use those three things and my consistency around everything else it makes me a dangerous bowler. It can be a strike bowler, it can be a decaying bowler, I can be just a, a grit and grind and get the boys through. Does exactly the same thing with batting. He has probably two shots. He can, he can score outside off against the paceman just by cutting or driving, and he can sweep against the spinners. And then other than that, he goes, I'm going to leave the ball alone, I'm going to block it out. I thought him repeatedly sweeping Ash Ashwin was like spinner on spinner champing indirectly. I loved it. I'm just like it was that was so great. It's like how do you champ the opposition off spinner? Repeatedly sweep him. Mm. I, it was that warm to the cockles of my heart. But he is always a player looking to improve. And I know you say the work he's done this week with his brother, but that's mm. 
It's mm. been it, that's been always been his thing. It's like I need to be a better batsman. I need to be a better fielder. I need to be a better bowler constantly. Mm. He's never felt he's, he's he's sometimes felt vulnerable about being in that eleven, but he's never felt like secure to the point where I don't need to improve now. I just need to do what I need to do. Yeah. He's always looking to improve, and he'd be he'd be a great leader. And that's why he sings the song, and that's why he's the. So we're going to go through some throwdowns, Gordo. So I'm going to get you to hit some of these deliveries for me and you're going to send a few my way and I'm inevitably going to hit them further than you hit yours. So India should have bowled first and forced Australia to lead with their weak link. Uh, absolutely not. Adelaide Oval always suggests that you bat first. And arguably, if India were batting last and Lyon was bowling in the last innings, could have been a different result. So it was a very good toss to win for India. They made the right decision to bat first. And really intense cricket, you want to be batting first in most situations. They're very one-day cricket, yes. Love a good chase. India, the master chases. Coley's proved that time and time again. 2020 cricket usually depends on the ground or the, or the uh, time of day. But test cricket, you win the toss, you bat first, you put up a big total, and you take the game away from that position. That was some Adam Collins logic that I pulled off Twitter. That was just an interesting little thought. Yeah, yeah no, that's fair enough, but I disagree. Uh, JB, Pat Cummings and Usman Khawaja showed what hard, tough cricket is. You had a little, you had a little cheeky at me off air, but I thought that Pat Cummins pulling off a run out after bowling nineteen overs in forty degree heat was the epitome of the hard and tough cricket that we should be trying to play. Likewise, Usman Khawaja dropping eight kilos and taking that catch in the gully, I thought was a look into what the Australian era or the new Australian era should be aiming to be doing. So now, when you wrote that statement, I actually thought you meant Pat Cummins and Usman Khawaja's comparison as players in this test show what hard, tough cricket is in the sense that Pat Cummins faced 120 balls today in the last innings to almost save slash win the game for Australia, whereas Usman Khawaja kind of got in his own head and away from his own game mm. and got himself out playing a, a silly shot. No, this was irrespective of their actual batting. But I just thought that was an indic- in- those, indicative of what we should be trying to do. And this is where I get a little... We had the same thing at our, at our own club around KPIs and things like this. I'm like, so one of our KPIs is usually we need to get a run out. And getting a run out is quite hard because it involves a lot of things to go right. Well, someone else has to make a bad decision. Yeah, the best man has to make a bad decision. They have to run with another run there. Then the bowler or the, the fielder has to pick the ball up and then usually throw down the stumps when they're horizontal, aiming at one stump. Like it, there is 99 times over 100, Pat Cummings misses that run out, in my opinion. I guess it's a great act of physical feats, but it's also a great act of luck. Like you got the batsman, Pajara, after a long day of batting, is like, come on now, as if I was going to go out that way. The same with the catch. Like the Usman Khawaja catch, yeah, it, if he was eight kilos heavier, perhaps he doesn't get as high. No way he gets there if he's eight kilos heavier. But it's also not like they're practicing that. You don't practice taking oh. left hand screaming. Did you not practice that at training? You don't, you don't no, practice. that was my forte at training. Oh, how many did you take? About a million, one and a half. Million, yeah. Millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Millions. Yeah. So I don't think those no. two things just show that. You need to take your chance, the cliche, take your chance. But for mine, they're not they're not things that can be defined as hard, tough cricket. Hard, tough cricket is the things that go unseen. So perhaps the eight kilo loss, perhaps, but he's also a professional cricketer getting paid millions of dollars. So chin up, son. But it is that it is that Pat Cummins coming in when we're when we're six down with another sixty overs to go, and he can go, it's not my job, I'm a bowler, or he can say, no, I want to try and win this test or save this test for the boys, for the nation for the baggy, whatever it is that he wants to tap into. For the baggy. For the baggy. <laughs> and uh, the baggy great. Come on, mate. Come on, mate. Here we go. For the baggy. And then uh, he did that. And that that's what hard, tough cricket is. And the bowler, the tailor did that. All right, Gordon. Little long hop here. Pajara is a bigger problem for the Australians than Virat Kohli. It's a different problem for sure. But I think Kohli showed that he can be Pajara if he wants to as well. As you said, if, if Pajara's 34 is the best 34 he'll ever make in, his, in the history of his career, then they've got a lot of problems with Cole and he's about to go out and make a school in runs. If it is a bit more of a situation where the rest of the bats, the rest of the Indian bats have to bat around Cole and let Cole do what he does best, and that's just dominate and champ bowlers, essentially. <laughs> Whereas Pajara is going to bat like he always does. 
Pajara didn't take the game away from the Aussies. He kept the Indians in the game both times. Yeah. It was a very even game, but yeah. It was it was probably the mistakes that made this game the difference as opposed to the credits on the winning side. Weak link game. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Whereas Collie can take a game away from you. Two hundred off two fifty balls, two hundred off three hundred balls. Mm. Pajara's never going to do that, but in these conditions, he was the perfect batsman for that pitch. Hmm. Oh, you, but you need Pajara's, you need Collins, mm. you need them to come together. But yeah, if I was the Australians, I'm still way more worried about Collie than I am about Pajara's. It's also as a three and four combination, they're a good contrast of style. All right, JB. Nathan Lyon is Australia's only real bowling weapon, and cheekily by you, I think, maybe their best bat as well. Well, I did say we should reverse the batting order, which is probably a little bit optimistic. Although Josh Hazelwood's little, like, Ramp cut upwards, uppercut, late cut over. Man, I've butchered that shot. Uh, over the slips was joyful, but um, I mean, for periods in the second Indian innings, it really did look like Nathan Lyon was the only Australian player that was capable of taking a wicket. Um, probably underselling Hazelwood a little bit there, but I thought that for all the huff and puff about how good our bowling attack was, the thing, the element in the four that was undersold was Nathan Lyon. He might not be our only weapon, but he was certainly our most potent weapon by some like by the length of the Flemington. That strike. does reflect a little bit of the Adelaide Oval drop-in pitch nowadays, though. If you look at all the mm. Shield results in the last, or since the drop-in, it gets easier to bat on the longer the, the test goes. Yes. Um, as seen, like the, the most recent game was the SAWA game where uh, Sean Marshman made 156 in the last mm. to steal the game. So spinners in that situation always going to be better because it's a little bit more rough and a bit more of a two-pace situation. But, yeah, I think... Yeah, it like, like, lines our best bowler. That's a, that's a fact. Yep. So, Gordo, Justin Langer was wrong to bring up Virat Kohli's post-wicket celebration. This stinks of sour grapes. They're the number one team in the world. Virat Kohli's the number one batsman. He's the best player. He's arguably the best captain. Maybe it's Joe Root. Probably a debate there to be had. Virat plays like that all the time. It's got nothing to do with the opposition. He runs around like a little schoolboy because he loves cricket. Like right now, he's just feeling himself. He's just like, how good is this? I wanted to play cricket for India my whole entire life. I get to replicate my heroes when I was a kid. I'm winning games. I'm winning games overseas for a change. I'm proving the point that we can be the number one. But we're the un, like, undisputed number one now, having won a test in uh, England, Australia, and South Africa. And... Yeah, I love this. I love this. And, like, does he look like a little under-11 under kid? Well, yeah, but that's different to being – it's not the Warner. He doesn't run at someone and get in their face. He runs around and acts all silly, but he's not giving anyone a send no, I mean, He's he, just super yeah. psyched to win. He does look – what he should be doing. <laughs> he does look like a goose. But I also thought the Gilchrist interview with him I thought was interesting in just the way that he self-reflected on past behaviour, but also – uh, it's hard to understand in Australian climate, I think, but the competitiveness of junior cricket in India and how that shaped him, I thought, was a really interesting outtake of that in the sense that he had to be that in love with the game to get anywhere. And mm. I thought that that was a really interesting and poignant thing from that interview. And then when you look at the on-field behaviour, it's not that out of sync with what he explained. And I think there's a level of self-awareness now with Coley that I think will ultimately lead to him having been a divisive figure in previous summers, actually ending this tour relatively well-liked, where Australians are kind of a bit like, like they were when they got to watch Lara. They'll be like, oh, we actually got to watch Coley. And you see that every time he goes to the crease. Like, and, and Lara is a pretty good example, not in their batting styles, but in their personas. Like Lara, like you ask Lara today, and he tells you he's the best player to play, play the game. Mm. Like He just has that much self-belief but he just loves he loves winning, he loves cricket, he loves being the person to do the job. Like Lara just yeah, Lara loves to win, Collie loves to win, and I love to be the blokes who do the winning for their nation. So yes, I think that's I think Langer's wrong. And also, like Justin Langer, we got done for cheating, like we still got that under our under our, over our heads. That that great cloud has not gone away yet. And we can't be going, eh, you can't celebrate too bad because then what's the response? Oh, you cheated. Like no one cares. Just put up with it. Hundred percent. JB, the Adelaide pitch is the best in the country. I think on past years you have to say yeah, and I know that they left some extra grass on it and left it at day-night length in terms of the grass, but I thought consistently it's played to a pretty good standard. It hasn't invited ridiculously large scores, and I think that test match where 300 is a really good score, I think is the that's the aim or should be the aim with our pitches is to be creating um, – contests around scores of 350 and if you can get to 350 that should be a real achievement 
Um, and I think the Adelaide pitch has done that. I think it played brilliantly in day conditions. Pitch played brilliantly. I was a bit concerned about the outfield, to be fair. I Slow. Because you say 300 is a good score. I think 350 is a perfect score. If you go 350, 350, 250 to 300, if you make 300, you win. If you make 250, it's game on. And then obviously, you know, you need that, you need that 275 in the, in the fourth innings. There was no value for shots and there was no risk. So Collie just did not set aggressive fields because he didn't need to. And so he could set these in-out fields where if it went into the gap, the swinger picks it up and it's only two or three. There's no real boundaries on off. You have to really smoke a ball to hit a boundary. Mm. And that, I think, is a bit unfair because it allows captaincy to be very modern and negative. And really, I would have liked to see Collie be forced to attack a little bit more on today as opposed to just win a war of attrition. But, uh, but other than that, you know. That's that's a small uh, fix, and I think as we get further into summer and it gets a little bit hotter again, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll see a little bit more quicker outfields. Gordon uh, Marcus Harris looked the part as a Test opener. <sighs> did he? How many balls did he face? I thought he did. How many balls did he face? Well, he didn't make runs, but I think how many he balls did he face? I don't know. Can't tell you. Well, let's look it up. You don't know. That's my point. That's why I'm being facetious. Yeah, Again, yeah, to, yeah. To, shout out, uh, to shout out some more cricket writing you should look out for in the coming week. I'm doing a piece on how long you should wait until you know a batsman is good enough at a certain level. So he faced 49 deliveries for 26 in the second innings. And then the first innings he faced 57 deliveries for 26. They paid two good not. He got in. He got in twice and he got out. That's not a good opener in my opinion. That's an okay opener. He showed some ability... Yeah, like he's not doing Aaron Finch things. Mm. Good. But Aaron Finch isn't an, isn't an opener. He never has been an opener. Harris has been opening at first-class level for a while now. I'm averaging 50. And it's not the performance. I think the, the fact that we are hyping up his performance as an Australian-level opener shows us how long we've been without a real opener for a very long time. Because we we've always had Warner, but we've never had... We've never been willing to accept another opener. It's like Renshaw, we didn't like because he batted too slow. So now we want somebody who strikes about 50, not 25. <laughs> but then, you know, he only made 26 twice. It's, it's not as good as everyone's making out to be. Does he have the potential? Definitely. He's shown that in shield cricket. Are there other openers out there that have the same potential? Yeah. Silk, Renshaw, even Burns, bring Kawaja up. There's plenty of other batsmen that can do what they, that he did. If he goes out and makes... He needs to make runs consistently. He needs to face more balls, especially. He needs to be making more Ed Cowan tons, 100 balls faced, than, uh, than runs in my liking. And once he gets past that 50 ball mark and goes on with it, then I'll be happy. But, yeah, he, does he, look, he has potential. He definitely doesn't look the part. That whole chat was a testament to Richard Hines and his real openers campaign and getting a ton of balls faced. Kawaja's second innings dismissal was yuck, Gordon. It was yuck. And it, it's just so annoying for him. I feel annoyed for him. Because he must – I've seen that happen to many cricketers at all different levels. They just get in their head, and he's in his own head when it comes to, when it comes to things like that. Like he, he's, he had his UAE moment where he's kind of like, the real Kawaja is here now, ladies and gents. Get ready for the Kawaja show. We're going to go into the future, be number three the whole time, and just not do silly things like that. And now he's kind of regressed back to the Kawaja that we know. And it's the same thing we see with Sean Marks. They, they, they do things – they do these amazing things every six to eight innings to say that, oh, that's what they could do innings in, innings out, and then they revert back to what we expect them to do, which is that. And until they flip that around, then, yeah, we're always going to be saying that Kawhi's a bit of a yuck guy against me. Did you not think that our left-handers needed a different approach to Ashwin to actually change the length that he was bowling to allow them to survive rather than just sit there and be ducks? Yeah, but it's very hard if that's not your natural game. Like you can't. It's very hard to go. Like I'm going to come down this spinner. I'm going. Or I'm going to reverse sweep this spinner. I'm going to swing this, like sweep this spinner. I'm going to hit him over his head aggressively. And also, like this, it's a lose lose for these batsmen as well. Like the ball's being away from that's already hard enough. If they come charging down the track to try and break up the lines and get stumped, well then they go. Oh, why are they charging in the track ball? But no, yeah, it's, it's a no win. It, you only, get killed it, if you do and killed if you don't. Yeah, but you like you may as well go with the approach that you think you are better at. Like he clearly played the way he did because that's how he thinks he can play spin. Now, he clearly has an issue, so he needs to change that. But he wouldn't go out there and do an approach that he didn't think was the best approach. You know what I, mean? I don't think he's ever been great at dancing down the wicket either. Uh, no. He's generally not been too great on his feet. 
even uh, bearing in mind recent weight loss. So mm. I don't know whether that was the approach for him. It might be the approach for others, but I do think it is interesting that they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see what they do between now and Perth to try and actually deal with this better as a crop of left-handers because this was a problem in the UAE as well. Okay, Gordon, the final ball yes. of the test match. Mm-hmm. An Australian victory would have been daylight robbery. Now, I never believe that a test match is stolen. It's very hard to win a test match. And so if, if Australia had won that test match, it goes back to my point about the really conservative fields that Collie set. I think that's against modern test captains are willing to just go, we'll keep going and they'll make mistakes. There's very few test captains out there in this current climate that are willing to go and go, I'm going to make the move. I'm going to make the aggressive move to try and force a checkmate. I'll just play for the stalemate and I'll just wait for you to fall over and get tired and make a mistake and waft at one. And most of the time, that's what happens. Mm. And then either you grind out a win like they did today or you see what happens in the UAE, whether it be a flurry where it's at the end of the day, like we saw against Pakistan and New Zealand, like we saw against, yeah, like ourselves in Pakistan, those kind of games. But very rarely are teams willing to take it on. Daylight robbery would have been us losing lots of quick wickets and then line making 100 at the end of the day. <laughs> like, and a swashbuckling, slap around, lucky, streaky 100. If we'd have won that, that's, that shows that every if every batsman in the 11 puts a puts a mark on their wicket, then you deserve to win that game. So, no, it wouldn't have been Della Bobbery. It would have been a great win. So, on to the next discussion point, and you scripted this somewhat in our last episode, talking about the impotence of Mitchell Stark as a test bowler. There were 37 extras for Australia overall in the test. I'm not attributing all of them to Mitchell. But of his last 23 test wickets this year, and the Crick Prof tweeted this uh, yesterday, 11 have come against number 8 to 11 batsmen. Against top 7 batsmen, his average is 57.58. In this test, he removed VJ twice, Sharma twice, and then Ashwin. Um, and 3 for 40 off 21 overs in the second innings was somewhat flattering. Um, so what is the problem? As Baum has written, Mitch Stark, in contrast, caused more grief to Tim, Tim Payne than the Indians, always enigmatic. He is now problematic. So was it his wrist? Is it his body language? Or is it his rhythm? Or does he need to find the blues? So a couple of things, in my opinion. I think, to get a bit SK worn on you for a second here, I think the, the current Australian setup is too focused on workloads and sports science. And so in a letter to this test, all three pace bowlers for New South Wales forwent playing in the shield cricket to train and get ready for the game. Now, arguably, the only way to get ready for test cricket is to play at least four days of cricket. Like, you can't replicate that in training. And you can't replicate... And because you're just not. Because when you're not bowling, you're standing. And standing causes fatigue on your body and your posture. And then you have to go through multiple spells and all that kind of stuff. They're not going to be, they're not going to be spending six hours at the nets in a net session because the sports scientists won't let them. So how can you possibly prepare for spending six hours a day out in the field for five days unless you go out and do exactly that? It seems quite ridiculous because in every other sport, what you do is what you prepare for. Want to run a marathon, you've got to run long waves all the time for a very mm. long time. Yeah, you don't prepare for a marathon by running 10Ks. Yeah, or by running 100-meter sprints. You do that as a supplement, but it's not your core focus. Mm. And, you, and I think we see that, especially with our pace attack, so they come in and out of form quite frequently because they spend less time playing long-form cricket. Or do you think we rate the ability of the three that are currently incumbent to the point that we overprotect them because we think they'll be a huge loss? Well, I think we overprotect them because they are injury-prone. But I would love someone, and shout-outs to uh, Dr. Jacob Jusen if he is listening, because I reckon this will be up your alley, I would love someone to actually do a extensive study on workloads and at what age workloads need to be increased and diminished and managed because you go back through the history of cricket and there are more injuries now than there were before, but the knowledge of sports science has increased. So that seems to be against intuition, whereas back in the day, even the likes of your Brett Lee's even before that, you're Damien Flemings. Like they all had injuries, but they weren't as injury prone. They weren't missing massive chunks of the of it ever season. They just seemed to bank up. The injuries they would face would be at the end of a career because they've played, you know, 
11 years of first-class cricket and eventually it's like, well, I'm knackered. Not, I've played 11 months of first-class cricket and now I'm knackered. So I, I don't know, but I would have thought if you can't get through a four-day Shield game before the Test Series and how you get through a four-test series mm. with two more tests to go after that. Something that's mentioned it at length in crossing the line in terms of the player management and the entry and bowlers only being out of bowl a set number of balls, which... Yeah, to me it seems very counterintuitive because Stark just looked, he looked rusty. Like, speaking about him being – rhythm is kind of a bit of a wishy-washy word, but it's essentially just having the right run-up and speed of run-up at different points when you're hitting the crease. And he lacked that. He was so wayward. There were balls down the leg side that had Tim Payne really grafting, and that is – well, he is Australia's best wicketkeeper. Hmm. And so, you know, for us to be conceding, what was it, uh, 30, Seven. 37 sundries, that's, that's too many. And if you look at the margin in the test match being 31, I know that you have to have some sundries because there's no balls and wides, but, you know, that's too many. Yeah. In, in close-ish, you know, we're close enough to them that that can make a difference. Absolutely. And I think, again, like foregoing a, a practice game, or not a practice game, foregoing, foregoing a first-class game, that's the only way you can get rhythm because that's the thing, like match practice, again, like every other sport, you only every athlete in an interview will say, yeah, we've trained well, but, you know, it doesn't really need much in training. We have to go out and do it in a game. Mm. and teams that are in ruts and teams that are in losing streaks never go, oh, we're training poorly. Like, everyone's training well because that's the thing you can training. control. You can control yeah. training. You can't control the game. And so you should be playing more cricket if you're out of form, essentially. That's what everyone tries to do, especially batsmen. Like, if you're out of form, you want to try and make runs out in the middle because making them in the net doesn't matter. Same as a bowler. You can't get that rhythm because it doesn't matter. If you bowl a bad ball in the net, it doesn't go for four. It goes to the side now. Mm. So... But now it's too late because, you know, next match starts in three and a half days. So, Good riddance. So the Perth prognosis, the five burning questions that I'm going to throw at you, Gordon, to tee up and change this little conversation from a review to a preview of events that will start on Friday in Perth. I love the Perth test because you get that little time difference and then you get, you know, three hours of cricket after work. It's brilliant. So will the pitch be as quick as they say? Uh, who knows? No one knows. So, yeah, it'll be a bit of a mystery. I'll follow that up then. Do we overhype the speed of the Perth pitch consistently because of nostalgia? Well, yeah, the Wacker wasn't fast for the last 10 years. Mm. And it was always like, oh, my God, it's going to be the quickest pitch in the country. Yeah. It's never been this cracking up monster that, you know, the Dennis Lillies and the Jeff Thompsons were bowling on and killing people without helmets. Oh, do you remember that year that Graham Smith went out to bat with a broken hand against Mitchell Johnson? There was a crack that was like, it was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that year? Yeah, but that, that was one. Like, the good old days, it used to be just like, oh, we're, we're, on, we're in Mars. Like, there's just craters everywhere, and it's going. It's all bedlam and whatever. But I'm like, never going to have that ever again. So. Space, space Jam areas. Mm. So, how much can Australia take out of this test match into the Perth test? Did our lower bat, lower water batting in this test just band over a much bigger cut? No. It shows that, as a collective, the, the 11... And the squad in uh, the larger squad wants to fight for wins, so they're doing the first part of that mantra that they said, like, "Come with us on the journey, and we're going to fight for you. We're going to fight for the for the baggy green." And Langer's thing about wanting to show that we can grit our team. So, like, I think they're getting their respectability levels up. They're definitely not feared now. Like, whatever fear factor there was, and like Coley coming into this test series was saying, "Oh, no, a straighter home's at a diff- um, It's a different prospect. It's a different challenge." Now they kind of say, "Well, maybe not that much of a challenge. Maybe we should win this." Um, what can they take out of that? They can take out that they've got a very good spin bowler, they've got a bit of wag in the tail, and the bats have a lot of room to improve. So I think the one thing they need, they need to work out, though, from their mistakes is that batting with intent does not mean scoring all the time. So they just need to be deliberate and look to be deliberate on whatever they choose to do. And so there's a couple of batsmen there, so Finch is one, Kawaj is one. Uh, probably Hanscom as well. They just need to go out there and be like, "This is like I'm going to leave with purpose. I'm going to attack with purpose. I'm going to defend with purpose." They were flattered by the result in the end because they're tail wag, but you don't want to be leaving it to ten and eleven. That's silly. So, do their quicks lessen the perceived advantage we thought we had because of the quality of our quicks? Especially when we don't play the short ball very well. There are a lot of blokes going out to short balls, which is concerning when we're meant to be doing that to them. And, I don't, and again, part of that is because our best quicks don't play first-class cricket in Australia, so you don't get to face 
Like the two blokes that can bowl that full, well, yeah, the two blokes that can bowl that fast consistently over the last couple of years have been Cummins and Stark, and they don't play shield cricket very regularly. So now you're down to what uh, Patterson and uh, Barrendorf when he's fit, and that's it really. Everyone else is in that very much county cricket level green deck seeming, but no one's putting it in sharp and hard and fast. So, yeah. Well, so Boomer, yeah, Boomer be, is a handful. Yeah, but oh, Boomer, and we saw that bounce on the net too, Collie. Like he can bowl a nice bumper. And get it right on the badge. Mm. A, they've got three blokes who can badge it at will. So maybe Perth doesn't isn't the the scare factor. And especially when it, if it is as fast as they said it is, and then the outfit's a bit faster as well, then then the attacking batsmen of India, when they've got a little bit of confidence, become a lot harder to contain if they get away from us as well. So see how that all plays out. So do we go in? in do we go? Sorry, do the Australians go in unchanged? And if so, uh, do we change the batting order? I'd only change the batting order. So you're not, um, going, you're, not going, you're not going an all-rounder? Because we don't have an all-rounder that's going to be any any worth his salt. Stoinis made 80-odd today. Yeah, and Stoinis, how many wickets he's taken in first-class cricket this year? Like, bugger all. So, like, do we need another bat? Well, arguably not, because we should have getting more runs out of the top six that we have, and the bottom four are, like, we already have two, or, we already have three all-rounders, according to today. <laughs> like yeah, the, the performance on the back of Cummins, Stark, and Lyon are all rounded performances. I think that's a very valid point because we shouldn't need an all rounder because our tail makes enough runs to compensate. Yeah. For like, in in essence, like we're not. That's yeah. I think that works out fine. And then if you needed a chop out, like, do we need another bowler because we can't bowl teams out? Well, then that's a different question. I'd, I'd be picking a bowler because we need more bowling bowling weapons, but then. I'd bite the bullet and pick another bowler. Take another take another legitimate quick. Yeah, and the other problem with that is I don't know if you could do that with Payne at seven with his batting. I don't think you could then go and take five batsmen plus Payne at six. I think that's too barren in the batting stakes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, unchanged? I'd say unchanged. Or my only change in the batting order would be move uh, Finch down from opening to six and you move everyone else up a spot. So, you open with Kawaja and then you'll have Martian. Three. Three. So the final question, will the well-behaved guys the Australians have had thus far continue in Perth if the heat hits them? Uh, yeah, because not, there's no one really, there's no attack dogs there. No, it's a very placid team of personalities comparison. It's all very squeaky clean, clean dudes. And it was interesting, uh, Crick Info, Dan Protegg wrote a piece about how at the start of the uh, test, there was lots of access, lots of... Uh, Weird interviews with the with the buggy and the spider cam, and they were all very open and willing to chat the Australians. And as the test got a bit more serious and a bit more tight, a bit more tense, those interviews became a bit more uh, uh, turt and quick, and there was less willingness to focus on that, which probably should be because you're trying to win a test match. Um, will they start glibbing off and getting a bit shitty? Uh, probably. Is that to be expected? Sure. I don't think that's a problem. Like if 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 you get hit for six as a bowler. You're gonna be a bit shitty, and if someone drops a catch off your bowl, and you're gonna be a bit shitty, like it's that's okay. What you don't need is, you know, people coming in and boxing on or whatever. So, and like that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna see David Warner's not playing. So the David Warner activities that usually happen when things go wrong aren't gonna happen because he's not there. I was trying out for the high school cricket team. Dream one day. Wearing that baggy green I gave it all I got When we were done The coach called me over and said Sorry son The People's Question Is going to be led in by a little short story Courtesy of me, a broken hearted widow You were ready to break up with him Finally, after seven years On and off again You were sick of him cancelling on you at the last minute Sick of him turning up And leaving quickly Sick of the messages saying, hey, my back's a bit sore, can we rain check? Or, sorry, just at the nets with Mitch and Rod. He was sick of him going back home, taking some time for himself, and then coming back refreshed, reborn, and renewed. You were even getting sick of the good days, where he was every bit as charming and delightful to look at as he was when he was a younger man with a better back. On those days, you'd, look, you'd think, gee, maybe this is it, finally, and then the flaking would begin anew. Your mind was made up, finally, not two days ago. It's over, Sean. 
All you had to do was deliver the death knock. But now your phone rings and there's a new text message at 11.53pm. Sean, Loveheart, XX, hey, you up. So, Gordo, that's a segue into the people's question. Is there too much disdain for the Marsh Brothers? And further to that, how should the public judge and view this Australian cricket team? This has been the one where I think people are reacting in the right way. So, like, there's obviously Sean Marsh, the human living being, that's a brother of Mitch, and, and we get annoyed at the fact that he that they seemingly get more bites at the cherry that is Australian test cricket than anyone else. And we'll have friends, we'll be fans of certain cricketers that are missing out because these two get another shot, and that annoys us. So then we express our annoyance on social media because it now exists and we can do that. And I'm sure if it exists 50 years ago, it would have been exactly the same. No one's saying, like, he's a bad dude. In fact, all accounts, they're both great people. But the fact is, it's just like they, it's not their fault that we don't like them, it's the system's fault that they keep on getting picked. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, like, it's not his fault he gets picked. And it's not his fault that he doesn't play better because he's obviously trying his hardest. But, like, history shows, and whilst I said before that blokes like Harris haven't had enough balls face to tell us what they're capable of, they've both been in the system long enough to know what they're capable of. And it's random moments of brilliance, patches of mediocrity, and long periods of subpar performances. No, so Gideon's line on this in the Australian was that Jeff was felt to add something beyond runs to the Australian teams in which he played. Sean, he just bats. So is the fact that we don't see a lot of personality in Sean his fault? Like, is that something that the public should judge him harshly because of? Or is it, do we simply, does the personality not matter? Are we simply pissed off because of the hereditary inheritance that we see? Well, we're we're pissed off especially by the heritage inheritance because they say, oh, these two boys can come into the team because they grew from a great lineage. As soon as that's said, that's like every single rep side, state team, first uh, school first level that you never made because the, the coach's son got picked instead of you, even though you made more runs or took more wickets. Like that's that's what it stands back to and everyone can relate to that. So the selectors, by saying that out loud verbatim and quoted in every publication – has just given everyone in Australia a reason to hate on these two players when they fail. Because it's that being played out on a national level. On a national level, where like 0.1% of people get to play. And it's like, well, imagine, you know, I'd be annoyed if it was me at club cricket. They're going to be annoyed if it's someone else at the at the international level. Most of the, the public and shared conversations are pretty, like, not, not polite, but they're pretty PC. Like, no one's going... As far as I know, sending him death threats. I'm sure if he slid into his own DM, it'd be horrendous and whatever. But in the public, in the public public sphere, everyone's just keeping to the fact of, oh, he's the only player in a hundred years to have never scored above ten in ten innings and still be selected for the team. And those kind of facts and figures. So, hmm. well, the best one of those tweets, and this kind of captures the. I guess a lot of it was good natures, natured. I don't love knocking a player, but Adam Collins tweeting a photo of the crowd behaviour fine on the scoreboard, which was $560, and then just captioning it, that'll be $560, thanks, Sean, was was amusing. But I guess um, I just wonder whether it was a little bit unfair. Like A lot of batsmen in this test match played bad shots, and Sean Marsh was castigated more than any other batsman for his poor shot. And but when you play the poor shot for the hundredth time, mm-hmm. then it becomes more of an issue. And it became, Gideon Haig described this thus. It was, Marsh's drive was a last-minute snatch, like the lunge Mr. Bean might make at a tray of appetizers just as it slipped out of reach, leading to a spilt drink, a groped waitress, and a cringe-inducing pause. Is that just simply because we've seen that before? We've seen it so many times. But haven't we seen it with Kawaja? But not as many times. Okay, so that... That's the variable. It's a threshold eventually. And then, like like you said, like you go to break up with a person and then they text you again and you go, I'll give you one more shot. And then the first, that, next, that immediate date or that immediate experience of the first month after that is beautiful and then the same things happen again. You're like, why did I say yes? Uh, the only thing that fills me with confidence is we've responded to this message with a cheeky, yeah, I'm up, come over. Duh, duh. But at the end of this summer, when we... And this is something that Baum wrote about in one of his columns is we then potentially get three batsmen back. We probably definitely get one. Maybe you'd probably be safe to say that one of Warner and Bancroft will come back in. So that top order then is is reshuffled. So there may be an end point 
on Sean Marsh through that. So like this 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 three test period seems somewhat like an audition for a lot of these players. And I know that that's something that Greg Baum wrote about, uh, I think it was on Sunday, when he basically just said that um, the quote that I've got written here was, their collective failing is inexperience, which is not their fault, which I feel like that sums up where this team is at. The collective failing is an experience, yes, mm. but that's not Sean Marsh's failing. No, that's not Sean Marsh's failing. That is the failing of others in the team. And really, so I have never been an advocate for development positions in test teams, Yep. but everyone, the general consensus seems to be that you have space for one. Yep. So who's who's that? But I'm like, no, we don't have that player at the moment. Do we? Like, our most our most uncapped players are head who's been captain of a SA state team for three years at 21. Yeah, we've had Peter Hanscom the same fact. So they're both leaders in their states who have done enough of a grind to earn their spots. Harris is the bolter, but he's not. He's, he's an opener. But you still got that little spot for a wild card batting at six. When we, we we could have replaced Sean if he had failed twice, but as our resident stats man Oliver Fitzpatrick said, like this is probably the worst case scenario for our batting lineup is that Sean Marsh makes sixty, which is enough to keep his spot, but not enough for Australia to win the game. <laughs> I was also said by Gideon that he's not keeping uh, a Brad Hodge or a Stuart Law out of the team. No, no one's knocking the door down. There are just people politely waving outside the front window. Yeah, I'm always a big fan of using that, knocking the door down as a little, like, that's such a great analogy. There's no one, like, kicking the fucking thing in. No. Um, and as it is, we'll answer the booty call so Sean won't have to kick any doors down. We'll open it for him and... And he'll be here for the rest of the summer. Good evening, Sean. How are you going? So Book Club is a little chat about the commentary. So like the summer of 77 when Kerry Packer's World Series cricket was launched, the summer of 2018 is a summer of change in Australian cricket. The on-field tribulations of the Australian team have been much discussed, but like 77, the new revolution is also taking hold beyond the rope. Kerry Packer, ah, long may he live, changed cricket broadcasting, famously declaring cameras were required at both ends of the ground because he didn't want to spend half of the game staring at the batsman's arse. With Seven, Fox and a host of radio broadcasters now taking over from Packer's former network, there are more options than ever when it comes to the question of how to tune into the cricket. This week's book club is built out of two features that capture the respective visions of Fox and Seven. Dan Bredick wrote about Seven for Crickinfo, whilst esteemed author Trent Dalton wrote about the relationship between Fox Cricket host Adam Gilchrist and the infamous Shane Keith Warne. So, Gordo, what has your go-to been over the past few days and why? Well, my my go-to, which I alluded to before earlier in the pod, is actually to have footage on, usually on mute, (laughs) then go to the radio. Yep. Uh, For footage, my favourite is Fox... One, there's no ads, and if you can afford to pay for no ads, you'll never go back because ads are super annoying, especially when it's like Channel 7 where the ads aren't only you know for products and brands in between overs, but it's also the let's slide in, uh, oh, did you know that this TV show is coming up and all the things that they – because for free-to-air TV, live sport is a way to advertise the other shows that you don't have to watch. Yep. So I know why they have to do it, but it doesn't make it any less annoying. Also why I love Fox, and especially the dedicated Fox Cricket Channel, is I've really bought into what Packer was saying way back when he invented World Series Cricket. So he wanted to revolutionise camera camera angles and get more access to the game. They've taken that and they've run with it, all about access, all about information, all about trying to educate you into the sport as well. And so from the piece that we were referencing, uh, written by Trent Dalton, Shane Warne has said like when he goes into commentary now at, at Fox Cricket, this is his approach, and he goes, you know what Kerry Packer told me? He was like, don't tell me what I can see. Tell me why it's happening. Yeah. It is no doubt that Shane wants a little bit, he's like on-air persona's a little bit rough, a little bit like I'm one of the boys, A, the Fonz. But like when he's focused and when he's fresh and when he's in, when the cricket's exciting or something intriguing is happening, especially with the spin bowlers, he's second to none. Like he's knowledge of the game. He picks up the things that you can't, that you can't see and he'll tell it. And even today when Lyon was bowling, he, he – 
pretty much told us that he's gonna he's, he's setting up Pinjara. Third ball, you have it. No, it's going to happen now. Watch out. And then before the last ball was bowled, he was like, no, if he puts it in the same spot again, he's going to get him out. And he did. And that's the stuff that we saw back in the day when he did the BBL as captain and he was calling his own overs and being like, oh, yep, and now I'm going to bowl this one. And then he got him out. Like he, he has this sixth sense when it comes to cricket. And the problem is where he gets into trouble is where he becomes about me, 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 the off field persona, always want to come in my face, how good are my stories. Mm-hmm which are less good because that's things that we can't relate to and we don't want to relate to and not really interested in because the cricket's on chain. Let's talk about the cricket and tell me how the bats are going to make runs or how the boss going to take wickets because that's what you're there to do. Yeah. And I've, so I've been on heavily Fox, on. He's been really good yeah. because he's not, he's not on for long stints. They'll use him as an impact commentator when the game's getting important and they'll get him out and they'll bring in the people that can actually carry a, a narrative along when it's a bit, when it's a bit slower. And yeah, there's less time for, and there's, and there's less, People there who are like, oh my god, it's Shane Warner. More people who are like, oh no, actually, I'll, I'll fight back on you and things, or I'll just take over and you'll have to play second fiddle. I mean, we've got through five days and he's yet to mention Ferris Bueller's Day Off or an American Pie film, so that's a huge win. I think it is the people around him, which very much speaks to how both Network Seven and Fox have gone to set their commentary teams up. So one of the outtakes from the Breddick article is that they've essentially gone with like three true broadcasters as their hosts in James Brayshaw, Alison Mitchell, and Tim Lane. And I think um, there's not – like Fox have done much the same. They've got Isagua, who is an ex-cricketer but a, a beautiful voice, hosting. And I think that the quality of those people around Shane Warne allows him to be used purely for, hey, what's going to happen? What's this doing? Tell me why it's happening. Him in tandem with Kerry O'Keefe is, I think, really entertaining. Um one of the things that is quite strange about the new commentary era is just how many people have moved across different places. So you've kind of got that uh, BBL commentary team from Channel 10 is now split because Ponting's with Seven and Mark Howard's with 10 and obviously, sorry, Mark Howard's with Fox. Um, Gilchrist is likewise with Fox. Um, you've got Kerry O'Keefe, who's no longer on the ABC. You've got Jared Waitley, who's going across SEN, but also doing Cricket 360 with Robert Craddock. So you've kind of got a weird musing or merging of different platforms from years ago. Um, I haven't actually tuned into Seven. Have you tuned into any of it? I tuned into this at the start, so I had yep. a bit of a, a, yeah, a bit of a car mentalized listening session. I try to get pretty much all the all the radio stations and all of the channels in at once for that first day. Um, Channel 7 for me is still too close in their commentary team dynamics to what Channel 9 was. So there was a little bit of, there's a little bit too much me, me, me. And that was seen today where I suppose uh, like the Slaters and the McGraths of the world were really referencing themselves and like, oh, this is like when we did this in this test or this is like what, this is what I used to do in chases and this is what i used to do when the things were getting tough and then they were to change rooms and blah 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 and it's very me focused to give you analysis not here's what i'm seeing here's what you should be seeing let's focus here Mm. so they got they got they got at the moment too much to my liking which is what channel nine used to do a lot of and channel nine used to be epitomized by an inside cricket ad that used to have like the photo of the commentary team and then used to have x number of text test caps x number of test captains this many wickets this many runs which was always an obscene amount because they were always obscenely good cricketers but this does demonstrate a removal from that one of the things that's interesting with your observation is i think seven can get better at that so they went and poached dave barham who was 10's bbl head of cricket and he said that uh and this is quoted in the Breddick article, having different commentary in a more conversational style driven by journalist callers will make it interesting for longer in my view. And I don't think Seven, from what you're telling me, have quite hit that yet. No, not yet. And again, I suppose the disadvantage that Seven has is they don't have access to the whole summer. So the uh, Fox Cricket team has been going since well, the JLT Cup they had there for people who were there. They had some of the overseas games, depending on who they sent over, and then also... They had uh, the one-dayers and the T20Is in the run-up to this. So they've got all the little kinks and weirdness out of the way and which which dynamics work together and which pairings don't. And They've done all their pre-season, whereas Channel 7, this is their big moment. They're a bit raw. They're a bit raw. And yeah. also the difference being as well is that you, you know what you're going to get tuning into Fox Street because you've been tuning in for about three months now, whereas with Channel 7, you would have tuned in on Thursday for the first time and been like, oh, cool, Tim Lane, awesome. And then after Tim Lane does 30 minutes or 40 minutes and they need to change, you go, oh, okay, now it's these guys. Okay, cool. Not quite the same. 
Whereas I think Fox, especially in my opinion, have a bit of consistency of caller. Yeah. They hold that journalist color expert the whole way through the day. Whereas I still think Seven drops out a little bit early from their from their peak to their their third tier. So I've heard feedback because Brayshaw coming on tends to make it quite blokey. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's Brayshaw as well. Yeah. And that's Channel 7 to an extent. Like It is free to wear. It is a different audience, and I know that that's something that is mentioned by Bredick. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a, it is a it's a casual fan to the – it's everyone from cricket diehards that don't, want to, that don't believe you should have to pay money to watch cricket and, and bless them, but you're probably living in a bygone era, to your casual fans that don't want to pay for it because they're, not going to, they're only going to use it for an hour a day of the summer and never again, and then to just people who just turn it on and be like, oh, the cricket's on. And then I wander over here to the kitchen and make a cup of tea and do a crossword or whatever. Now, I don't know if this makes a difference, but Alison Mitchell's still calling on the ABC. Am I right in saying that Tim Lane's still doing radio? I think I he's still doing Macquarie. I think he's, yeah, he's doing Macquarie. And is Brayshaw doing radio? No, because Triple M don't have the... Okay, so does that make a difference to the callers, the fact that they're working across different platforms? Because I, on the surface, would think that there's less of that happening with Fox. Uh, yeah, definitely less happening with Fox. Though Fleming is on... SEN as well as Fox Cricket. Yep. Yeah, but he kind of does. I mean, he's really because he's a bowlologist analyst. Yeah. I feel like it's easier to do that multi-platform as a as an expert than it would be as a host because the ABC is a long way from Channel Seven, and I'm not saying that Alison Mitchell's not doing it well. I'm just putting that into yeah, the yeah. Um, Alison's always done that though. She's always been well. She does TMS and Channel Four in the UK. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And then in the years where England played over here, she's done BBC, ABC. Sometimes SEN. Uh, so she's all over the place, yeah. So and that's, but that's like she's probably the best at what she does. She's probably, she's probably the best out there. Full stop. She's the standard bearer so, mm. for her. But yeah, I, do, I would agree. Getting your tone right, but I think for someone like Alison, you don't say Alison match our tone. You go, Alison, we got you because we want to have you and what you do. So just do it for us as well as wherever else you're doing it. Yeah, and I think he was very deliberately. Um, there's a really interesting story in the article about Dave Barham listening to an Ashes test on the buy at the ground wirelesses with Alison Mitchell and he sat there thinking about what Seven would do if they got hold of the cricket. And So that was one of the first things he did, which makes sense because if you listen to her work, it's absolutely sensational, hmm. which leads me nicely into a little segue because there are more female callers now as a result of Nine not having the rights, but I do you think there's enough now? Could there still be more? Does there need to be more? I think there needs to be more, especially in a sport like cricket, where we now have a pretty burgeoning women's scene. Yep, hugely burgeoning. And we want to see, we're going to have more women's cricket on TV. So unless you, I reckon you take it two ways. So you can either go, we'll have, at the moment, it's about a 70, 30, 80, 20 split, male, female, for the male games. So if you're going to say that's the standard, then you're going to do the opposite for the women's games and have an 80% women's cast with 20% male yep. cast. And then you can go, all right, that's not quite fair fair because the viewership and the money's not the same, but it's a start. Or you say it's 50-50 across the board. Or you say let's try and get more women on to bridge it over so we have more talented reporters. Absolutely. And a final little note. Did you read the eulogy written by Alex McKinnon in The Guardian for Daddles the Duck? I did, but I didn't really care about Daddles, to be fair. Oh, that's brutal. Well, like, it was just a little – it was – it was probably groundbreaking when it came out to be. And then, because, like, it was, it's like when you go back and you watch those classic era games when the Ranger Lays were on, when Cricket was on Channel 9 still. Novelty. And you, and you kind of noticed, like, little changes. Like, there was one year in particular where, the, where there was, they distinguished golden ducks and regular ducks by the colour of the duck. Quack. But it's like, you're kind of like, that's kind of cool. But it doesn't affect my viewing at all. And so, like, I know they scored a zero. Do I really care that they don't have daddles out there? Like, I don't, I don't care. Oh, I loved it because it added to the embarrassment. Oh. And did you ever play like the cricket? You played like PS4, PS3, PS, I'm talking PS1 cricket where yeah. you get out and then they had the duck there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I loved it. I thought it was, well, I mean, I thought it was probably a little bit more nostalgia, I think, is more me than you. So maybe that's why. Yeah, not I don't think it'll work on Fox. Fox, because all of Fox's graphics are very, like, new age and, like, we're going sharp, we're going, like, ESPN. Yeah, Daddles is pretty retro. We're going ESPN vibes, <laughs> we're going, like, that real slick high production value. Yep. 
it may have worked on seven, but even seven, like when seven did the footy and stuff, it's always been pretty slick and pretty like Monday Night Football on Fox type thing. Like both of those guys, both of those outlets are going for high production value, and even the BBL did away with quacking ducks as well. So I maybe we've just gone past it now. We've just gone past Daddles, unfortunately. May he rest in carteroid peace. <laughs> 